0: today hallelujah come on let's give jesus a clap offering like we really mean it he's worthy of it all yeah did that bring back the memories he reigns that first song we did oh that was so good as you're sitting now would you just high five somebody next to you half of you're already seated man look at that just elbow somebody next to you online if you're at home with your family and you haven't given them a hug yet maybe you're mad at each other but still would you just say hello today I'm thankful to have my parents with me today. Uh, They don't get to normally come because they're pastors as well, but they're on a little sabbatical. So would you give them a bentry welcome as well? My dad and mom are here. I'm thankful to share this morning with them. We are in week two of a series we started last week called Book Ends, where we're looking at the beginning and end of the story of God as recorded in the scriptures and finding threads that God is inviting us to discover in his grand story. And today, I want to talk to you about the tree of life, the tree of life. Robert Frost, in 1915, he wrote a poem that you may be familiar with because it's the most popular poem that he wrote called The Road Not Yet Taken. The road not yet taken. And the setting of this poem is of a person who stands at the fork of a decision, trying to decide which path to take. And quite honestly, there are two paths that look very similar. Frost even says that they both that morning equally lay, and both just as fair. But the gravity of this poem is that one must choose. Like choice is inevitable. You must choose. So he writes in the beginning, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I could not travel both and be one traveler. So long I stood. I wish I could take both just to see where it ends, but I couldn't and be one traveler. I must choose. But the hard part about this choice is that the poem says, once you've chosen a path, there is no really going back. It's a weighty decision. So he writes, knowing how way leads onto way. I doubted if I should ever come back, or really could ever come back. Frost finishes the poem with this profound statement that you may recognize. He says, I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood. And I took the one less traveled by. That statement probably rings true. Sometimes it becomes a part of vernacular when you're trying to make a decision. Either the Holy Spirit or Robert Frost is saying, take the road less traveled by. But notice the tense here. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Meaning, I couldn't imagine the difference my choice would make. But in hindsight, when I look back at the choice that I made, wow, that has indeed made all The difference in the world. This poem speaks about the gravity, the significance of the choices we make, the decisions we make in life. Did you know that every single day, you and I both, on average, we make 35,000 decisions every single day? Yeah, 35,000. So that means every waking hour of your day, you are making about 2,000 decisions per hour. I wonder why you come home at the end of the day and you are tired and exhausted. Now, some of those decisions we know make little to no impact on our life. Like what you wore this morning probably isn't going to make a huge significance in your life. Unless you meet somebody for the first time and end up dating and then who knows, maybe it does. But most of our decisions have little to no impact. But there are some decisions we make in life that shape us. Like the people we bring into our life, the places we go, the jobs we take, some of those decisions have an impact. And there are some decisions that not just have an immediate impact, but a long-term impact, not just on our life, but on the lives of those around us. And even in the lives of generations to come, it's the significance of choices we make. Today, we're going to travel back through the trails of human history, and find the first two human beings standing at the moment of a decision, a choice. They stood in front of two paths, but for them, the two paths were two trees. And there, a choice was made that led humanity on a trail where there was no going back. So today, we want to look at that moment of choice and how God redeems it. Would you stand with me? Today we're going to read a longer section of scripture from Genesis. I would love it if we just stood together for the reading of God's word. Would you listen to this passage? It's a familiar story if you've been a believer for a while. But find yourself in the story. What would you do? What choice would you make? Reading from Genesis 2, verse 7 to 9, God's word says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life Into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now jump into Genesis 3, verse 1 to 7. Now, by now, Eve has been formed out of the side of Adam Verse 1 says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die I don't know if he laughed like that or not, but I'm just thinking, no, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fake leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. Genesis 2 recounts the creation narrative from a slightly different perspective from Genesis 1. But like we said last week, this is a home story, not a house story. So we can appreciate the angle. Genesis 2 doesn't begin like Genesis 1, with a world that's dark and in chaos and empty. It actually begins with an earth that is barren. It is lifeless. It is not livable. It is uninhabitable. So the story here recounts of God planting a garden full of life in the midst of lifelessness. In the narrative that we read, this is kind of the order that Genesis 2 records for us, that God began with dust. It's the land, it's the ground that existed. Uninhabitable land. But the first thing God does in Genesis two verse six is to cause water to spring forth from the ground. So when water and dust mix, what does it make? Mud. And so God takes the mud and he begins to form a man. He creates a structure of a man that we call Adam, and he breathes his own life into Adam. And Adam, this structure, this frame of a human being, comes to life with the very breath of God, and now he is a living being. The word Adam means humanity, and it represents how God gives each and every one of us life. But then God continues to build. He continues to speak life. He There's an area called Eden and he begins to cause a garden to spring forth from Eden. All kinds of trees that were beautiful and delicious fruits were growing from the tree. One place that was lifeless is now teeming with life. Eden means the place of pleasure and delight. And then at the very heart of the garden are two trees, two trees. So, one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other we call the tree of life. The tree of life. And notice this progression God takes Adam. He is formed from the ground by dust, goes through Eden, the place of God's delight, and now in the fruitfulness of the garden. And he is at the very center with Eve, at the very center of God's delight, the place of his pleasure. And this is what God intended when he created humanity, for us to dwell with him in the place of his delight and pleasure. Nothing broken, nothing wrong, just perfect in the center of a life-giving garden. But at the center of this garden is a choice. There are two trees, not just one, meaning there is a choice. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the ability to discern good from evil independent of God. This forbidden tree represents self-defined, self-affirmed, self-created morality. A principle, a discerning system of human discernment in disobedience to god it is our ability to choose right from wrong good from evil on our own is self-centered self-defined morality but then there is another tree the tree of life and this tree speaks to the eternal life that god wants to lavish on humanity a life where he is a source of our life he is a source of our goodness our joy a life fully dependent on him not on ourselves. A life of trust, a life of intimacy with him, a life of obedience, loving him, honoring him, finding him to be the only source of life. So there are these two choices, two trees. And Adam and Eve have a choice to make. And as Robert Frost said, they are equally just as fair, equally laid before them. Sometimes when we think of the tree, that these two trees, this is the image we have in our mind: like one is full of life and leaves and fruit, and the other one is just withering away. Well, that would make the choice a little bit easier, I think. I, I think, wouldn't it? But actually, the picture of Genesis two is that these two trees look more like this. They both look life-giving. They both look good. In fact, it says in Genesis three that Eve saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden tree, to be desirable. Even delightful. And she saw food on it that seemed good to eat. Yeah, both trees looked good as if it could offer life. But to take of one was to disobey God. It looked like it could offer life, but it was a life of disobedience to God. Well, there in the center of the garden, mankind who was created out of dust, now living in the pleasure. And the light of God, they choose the forbidden tree to partake of the one prohibited, one prohibition God made. He said, you can have all the trees, but this one, I'm like, no, I think we'll have that one. And they chose their own ability to discern good from evil independent of God. So just like the choices we make have consequences, there was a consequence to their choice as well. And notice the consequence in Genesis 3, verse 22 to 24. The Lord God said, since a man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out. Take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taking. taken. Taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim with the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, when we read this as face value, maybe the first time you read it, maybe this is the first time you're reading this passage. You're thinking, wow, that is so severe. How harsh and cruel of God to ban his own creation from the tree of life. But can I propose to you, this is not actually a judgment. This is an act of Mercy. The God, even in this judgment, is acting out of mercy. Why? Because God knows if Adam and Eve in this current condition of brokenness and sin and shame, if they now partake of the tree of life, they will have the benefit of living forever. But they will live forever exiled from God, alienated from him. They will live forever in the condition of their shame, their guilt, because now they realize they're naked and ashamed. There's a brokenness that's entered, and God is saying, I don't want you to live forever like this. So I'm exiling you out of the garden. Here's a fascinating question I've been thinking about this week as I've been preparing, and I think maybe I'm considering changing my mind on something. I know that sounds really scary. I'm going to talk about it more. Here's a question. If God had to prevent Adam and Eve from taking of the tree of life so they wouldn't live forever, could it be that God actually made Adam and Eve immortal and not immortal? Sometimes we think Adam and Eve were created immortal, that by their own nature, they were to live forever, and this is the moment that changed it. Actually, God is saying, if you take of the tree of life, then you will live forever, So were they created mortal or immortal? We'll find out in a few weeks when we talk about the issue of death. I think they were created with a choice. God longed for them to be immortal, to have eternal life with him. But God created them, brought them into the place of his pleasure, his delight in the center of the garden. I want to enjoy life with you. And I'm hoping that you take of the tree of life and not the one that I have forbidden. I want to live face to face in this perfect intimacy with you. But you will be given the choice. In the moment of their choice, they took of the wrong forbidden tree. And God says, I can't allow you to live forever now like this. So I'm putting angels with fiery flames to guard you from being stuck in this predicament. Just my opinion. It's okay if you have a different one. God said to them, you will surely die. And if you see this diagram, the worst of their death wasn't just physical. It was alienation from God. God had brought them into the heart of the garden, the center of life with him, hoping and believing, perhaps, that they would take the choice of life. But now they have chosen the wrong tree, and they have to leave the center of the garden and leave the garden itself and leave Eden And the Bible says, back to the very ground God formed Adam from, to cultivate it. The real meaning of death is alienation from God. It is separation from his presence. And here, Adam and Eve are separated. And the tree of life can't be returned to. The whole story of the Bible is God now going on a rescue mission. And the turn of the story is we could not make our way back to the tree of life, the life with God we were designed for. Therefore, God actually went on our journey to the dust, to the ground to which we were exiled into, that God would go on our journey. And so the Old Testament scriptures have moments of God visiting people in the dust, coming to people, whether on mountaintops or creating a tabernacle or a temple, visiting with people and letting them know I've made a provision for you to come back to the tree of life, to experience life in me. But this provision cannot be dependent on your ability to discern good from evil, because every time you'll fail, this provision can only be by trusting in me, by believing in me. So that moment where God shows up to Abraham and tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to offer your promised son, Isaac, as a sacrifice, Whoa, if we're operating out of the tree of good and evil, that is a morally evil act. It was a moment of test. Abraham, in this moment where I'm asking you to do something that makes no sense, will you trust your own discernment of good and evil or will you trust me? Abraham trusted God and he climbs up the mountain with Isaac and there God says, Abraham, you've passed the test. You don't have to offer up Isaac, but hey, there is a ram in a tree, a substitute life caught in a tree. That's the sacrifice, not your son. God meets Moses through a burning bush, begins to speak on a mountain again. And as Moses is seeing this bush that is burning but not being consumed, I think the biblical author is pointing us to the last image that Adam and Eve saw of the tree of life. Another tree with flaming swords and fire all around it. And Moses here again in front of a burning bush full of life and vitality and flame surrounding it. And out of it comes the voice of God saying to Moses, Moses, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. This is my presence. And I think God was sending a message to Moses. Moses, you may not be able to get to Eden, but Eden is coming to you. My presence is invading the earth. I'm not just going to stay in the garden. I'm going to show up in real life-giving ways to my people. God was visiting his people. If you study the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, they had furnishings all across, including the menorah, that reminded people of the tree of life that they were designed for. God wanted us to reconnect with him. But though God kept showing up in many different ways, you know what happened? Every generation since then kept choosing our own tree of good and evil. For instance, when the Israelites are delivered by the mighty hand of God out of Egypt, they come back to the same mountain. God is saying, worship me, have life with me, have life in me. And what do they choose to do? We'll make a golden calf. There's life with God, worship of God, or our own terms of good and evil. and they rejected life. Turn to their own definition of good and evil. God is leading the Israelites victoriously as their king. Yahweh, their God and king, giving them victory over the nations. And eventually they decide, you know what? We want a king like the other nations. We want our own definition of good and evil. Time and time again, you see across the Old Testament, people setting up idols in high places where trees were found. Idols, false trees, false places of worship, Where God was to be worshipped, we chose our own tree of good and evil. So what does it mean? Does it mean we are hopeless, stuck in our own discernment of good and evil and forever exiled from God? No, no, no. Here's where the story becomes so good. See this diagram I showed you and how Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden back to the dust. Jesus, who is the very source of life, for our sake, for our salvation, he leaves the glories of the garden and he joins us in the dust, takes on our human nature, takes on flesh, lived among us, walked among us. The author of life says, you know what? You can't get to me. So the tree of life is going to be replanted in the face of the earth, on the dust of the ground. And I'm coming as a life giver who tabernacles with you. Notice the words of Jesus in John 10, verse 10. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. This is what happened with the serpent in Genesis. This is what happened every generation since then. Satan promising life, but... Not delivering. Promising joy, but not delivering. And Jesus said, every time you've turned to the tree of good and evil on your own, it has brought destruction, darkness, chaos, hatred, violence among people. And enough is enough. So Satan Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come so that you may have life." life. What kind of life? Life in all of its abundance. Yeah, the journey back to the tree of life is banned. But God is not banned from coming to us in the dust. I've come to give you life. The tree of life at the center of the garden is replanted on the dust of the earth. In fact, Jesus would say like this in John 15 verse 5, I am the vine. I'm the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Because you can do nothing apart from me. There is no life apart from me. So he's stating, I'm the vine. I'm the tree you want to be connected to. I'm the vine you want to take part in. But the offer is incredible. It's not just saying, come and partake of me. It's saying, come and be a part of me. Be the branch to my vine. Yes, have life. Taste of the living water. Have of the bread of life. Have of this tree of life. And now join me in bringing life to the world. Be the branches who are producing life everywhere and anywhere. Oh, the tree has been replanted. He walked in the flesh, Jesus our Lord. Jesus began his earthly ministry with a choice in the wilderness. Temptation. And just like Adam and Eve's choice, this temptation included food. Except they were tempted in the garden, he was tempted in the wilderness. And the choice was desirable to his human flesh. He had not eaten for 40 days, and I'll be really wanting food. Even more desirable than that fruit was to Eve, food was to Jesus. And yet he refused to bend his will to his human desire in obedience to the Father. And at the end of his earthly ministry, right before he gets to the cross, Jesus again is not in a wilderness, but in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And he is given a choice. Will I go through the cross and the pain and the passion and the hurt and the, all of the horrific ways Jesus was treated. Or do I exit the story? Jesus prayed it like this. Father, if you are willing, Luke 22 verse 42. Father, if you are willing, Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. If you're looking through the lens of human discernment of good and evil, we would say, Jesus, save yourselves. That's what the Romans said. That's what the zealot on his or the thief on his side said. If you're able to come off the cross, come off the cross. That's morally good for you. Don't go through the sacrifice the metrics of our good and evil would not agree with the cross of Jesus. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. The word for will there in the Greek is the same word for desire in the Hebrew. As Eve saw the fruit of the tree of good and evil to be desirable, Jesus in his human flesh, he was God and man in his human flesh. You know what? Getting out of the cross seemed desirable. But what he says, Father, not my desire, but yours. Eve bent her will to her own desire, but Jesus bends his desire to the will of the Father in perfect obedience to him. And there Jesus would take an old rugged tree, a cross, and take it to the top of a mountain called Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he would be crucified there. He would give up his life for you and me. And just like there was a tree of life in the center of the garden here on a hill, and actually, as John says in chapter 19, in the middle of a garden, Jesus would hang on a tree. Notice what John says in John 19, 41. There was a garden in the place. Gardens and trees keep coming up, don't they? There was a garden in the place where he was crucified, A new tomb was in the garden that no one had been placed in. So in the beginning, in that garden that God made for us, Adam and Eve, they experienced death in that garden because of their disobedience and because of their sin. But here in this garden, Jesus experiences death because of his perfect obedience and because of our sin. So he's placed in a tomb Why would he do this? Well, it's because of what Jesus said in John 12, verse 24. Concerning his own death about that day, Jesus would say, I truly tell you, unless a grain of wheat, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. What Jesus is saying is, on the cross, I am putting in a seed of eternity. My death would be the seed for all humanity that I would go to the cross. I will be hung on a tree on the top of a hill on top of a garden because this is the only seed that would produce eternal life in the heart of humanity. I love how one author said it. He said, Jesus's tree of death became our tree of life. His tree of death became our tree of life because three days in that garden tomb, Jesus would conquer the very death that Adam and Eve ushered in by their sin and disobedience and he would say to us, the curse is removed. Eternal life has been granted. Can I get an amen in the house? His tree of death became our tree of life. We could not go back on the journey from the garden. So Jesus came forward. And he met us on our journey. He paid the price we owed, giving you and I eternal life. Jesus would say it like this. this. is not on your screen, but listen to these words from Jesus in John 5, 24. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And they will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Wow. Anyone who believes in me. Yes, let's praise God for that. Thank you, thank you. Anyone who believes in me. No more moral tests are needed. The moment you believe in who Jesus is, you have eternal life. You don't have to pass through another test because you've already passed over from death to life. The tree of life is opened up because you have placed your faith in me, the tree of eternal life, the giver of all life. So Genesis begins with the tree of life. And as you imagine, Revelation ends with the tree of life. When John sees the vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, the bride of Christ. Oh, it's a beautiful picture. And just like in Eden, at the center of the garden in Jerusalem, rather in the center of the city of Jerusalem is a river, and either sides are the tree of life. Look at what John sees in Revelation 22, verse 1 to 3. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. Notice how a garden has turned into a city. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every single month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will be no longer any curse. No longer a curse. John sees the image of a garden-like city, the new temple of God, where every inch of new Jerusalem is filled with God's presence, just like Eden was meant to be. But in contrast, Genesis here, there aren't two trees. There's only one tree. Because our eternity with Jesus is not secured by our choices any longer. It's secured by the choice of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And John sees a tree of life. And he says, this is so huge that this tree spans on either side of the river. No matter where you look, you can't turn away from the tree of life. There's just life everywhere. There's grace everywhere. There's fruit everywhere. And then John says, 12 branches, which I think signify the 12 tribes of Israel. That God said, out of my people will come a Messiah, because what's coming out of the 12 branches are leaves for the healing of the nations of the world. And God promised in Genesis, Abraham, I'm going to start a people through you, and through you will come someone who blesses the nation. Your seed will be the blessing of the nations of the earth. Jesus is the seed of Abraham he comes to the lineage of David he went to a cross he died the debt we were owed and because of Jesus every nation, every people group every language, every tribe and tongue regardless of the shades of skin regardless of your life experience regardless of your religious background wherever you come from we find life and healing because of the tree of life who is none other than Jesus himself the curse is removed And the nations are healed. All because history of death is our tree of life. I'm almost already out of time, but I want to give you two things. I have like five, but I'm going to give you just two. How does this impact you tomorrow? So great, there's a tree at the beginning, a tree at the end. What does this mean for me today? There's two things I want to propose to you. First of all, we must make Jesus's tree of death our tree of life. The only way for us to experience life is to come to the foot of the cross. Maybe you're not yet a believer in Jesus and you have said to yourself, by my own discernment of good and evil, I am morally good and that's where my life is. Or maybe you've said, I am morally evil and I can never have life, Someone keeps gonna keep trying. In my own effort, and my own strenuous deeds, I'm gonna try to work my way back to the tree of life. But from the gospel story is whether you are morally good or morally evil, we're equally dead. Our robes of righteousness on our own are like filthy rags in front of a holy God. So regardless of where you put yourself on the moral scale of good and evil, we are invited to the foot of the cross and receive life from the tree of death, which is Calvary, and then to come to the empty tomb and experience the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. There's an invitation for you today, just as Adam and Eve stood in front of those two trees. What will you choose? In fact, listen to this invitation from Deuteronomy of all places. And notice how God would say to us today in light of Jesus Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 to 20. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Choose life today. Choose the cross. Choose Jesus. Choose forgiveness by the grace of God. I will Verse 20, what does it mean to choose life? Love the Lord your God. Obey him and remain faithful to him. Why? For he is our life. And he will prolong the days as you live in the land the Lord swore to, your, to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The invitation is you and I are at the foot of the cross, and we have a choice. Will I choose the life-giving tree coming from Jesus for my own immoral goodness, whether good or bad. The invitation is there is no life apart from Jesus. Choose life. I think a second point of application for us is this, and especially for those of us who are believers in Jesus. We must surrender our own definition of good and evil. And we must trust that what God says is good and what he says is evil. We live in a time where we are determining our own good and our own will. And you may have your identity fully in Jesus and your eternity is secure. You're one with him. But every single day, we actually find ourselves at the cross sections of decisions we make. And in the daily decisions of our life, we will be given a choice. Will you lean into the tree of life coming from God? Or will you lean into the tree of your own good and your own will and your own evil determined by your discernment? Which will you choose? It's interesting from the beginning where in Genesis, we see a lot of the tree of life. In Revelation, we see a lot of the explicit nature of the tree of life. The other place where you find the tree of life mentioned the most is actually in the book of Proverbs. Where you read about God's wisdom and an invitation to turn away from our own wisdom and to embrace the wisdom of God, his counsel, his statutes, his wisdom. Notice how Solomon writes it in Proverbs three, verse 13 onwards. He says, happy is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding. For she, meaning God's wisdom, is more profitable than silver. And her revenue is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can equal her. And that word desire points us back to the desire Eve had to take of the forbidden tree. So nothing you desire, nothing that appeals as life to you, nothing that you see as good to you, apart from God's wisdom, it will not equal the wisdom of God. Verse sixteen: Long life is in her hand, in her left riches. Uh, long life is in her right hand, in her left riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, and all her paths peaceful. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. And those who hold to her are happy. God's wisdom is a tree of life, producing peace in a broken world. So tomorrow you find yourselves at work, sitting in a room trying to make a decision, and there perhaps is a decision on the table that is more dependent on your discernment of good and evil. Often our choices will lead to more power, more increase, more influence to us. Our way of what seems right. Perhaps there is another option of the tree of life. God's wisdom, his way, his nature. Which will you choose? Maybe you're at home and your kids do something really, really bad that you've told them a hundred times not to do. And our own tree of good and evil says, man, they deserve your rage. The tree of life says they need correction, but they need mercy. They need grace. Perhaps you're discontent in your marriage. And you don't feel noticed or paid attention to. And somebody of the opposite sex pays attention to you, notices you. And the tree of our own good and evil says, man, I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. No one will notice. As long as I don't hurt anybody. The tree of life says, fight for your marriage. Be faithful to the covenant you've made. And even if you don't see life, will you trust in Jesus to resurrect life in your marriage? Don't listen to the serpent. Don't listen to the way of humanity's discernment of good and evil. Maybe there's a grudge you've been harboring in your soul and you feel every inch of it, you're entitled to it. That person has done me wrong time and time again. I'm never going to let them go. That's the tree of our own good and evil saying, here's a framework of how you determine good from evil. But what does the tree of life say? Doesn't it say, think of all the ways that God has forgiven you. All the wrongs he has cleansed us of. So why not release that crutch? Choose the tree of life. The words of the serpent in Genesis was, did God really say? That's the word he still whispers to our soul. Did he really say? I mean, that was 2,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago. Did he really say? Did he really say that pornography is that bad for you? I mean, it's just you and a screen, right? Can it really hurt anybody? The tree of life says, don't you wanna be free? Don't you wanna confess to one another and be healed? Don't you want real freedom, real healing? Here's a common thing we hear, did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? I mean, our own framework of good and evil says, well, if it's consensual among two adults, they have a natural attraction to this, sure. Let them pursue what is good in their own eyes." I know it's a sensitive topic, and this is a personal journey for a lot of you, and there are Christians and non-Christians who land on different sides. But all I'm asking you to do is reconsider the tree of life. Reconsider the creation narrative of God. Reconsider God's wisdom for life, for sexuality, for marriage. And sometimes that comes at the cost of not pursuing what we naturally desire, our own attractions, but we choose the way of the cross and we bent our desire our will to his perfect design and we listen to the voice of the spirit saying, here's where life is here's what you're defined by today in the tree of good and evil we'll say hey conformer change your body to match your mind especially when it comes to choosing gender But the Bible says, not change your body to match your mind, but to renew your mind to match your body. Romans 12, 2, be transformed, not conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to discern what is the right, perfect, pleasing will of your heavenly Father. Yes, there are members of our body within us that wage war and we wanna give in no matter what that is. But the invitation of the Father is, will you yield your desire to my design? You listen to the voice of the Spirit. Just stand with me, I don't know where you are in the cross sections of your life. But today, for all of us, regardless of where we find ourselves on this path, it's an invitation to surrender, to surrender. C.S. Lewis once said it like this, you can't go back to the beginning and change the start. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. You can start with surrender. Maybe for you, it is a surrender to Jesus as Lord of your life. God, I'm throwing away the sources of my life, the false trees of my life, and I'm surrendering to the cross of Jesus. Maybe for you, you've set up other things. I know it's football season, but sometimes the source of our entertainment can become the source of our life. I know I was going to offend a few of you. But sometimes the source of our income can become the source of our life. The good things that God has blessed us with can actually become false, bad sources of life. Today I'm just asking you, what is the false tree you've been looking at? Would you surrender? Because the story of the gospel is God left the garden with you in mind. The God who made it all said, I'm coming for you to give you life. So in this next song, it's a song of surrender. That says, God, you who created all of this, if you would come and yield your desire, your will to save me, and so will I. I'll yield my heart by faith to Jesus. As we sing, may the Holy Spirit reveal to you the false trees of your life. And would you by faith trust in Christ as the only source of life? Would you listen to his voice and the decisions that you make?